Good morning. Will you stand? We're going to read just the first four verses of Hebrews as an introduction tonight, uh, this morning. And then Psalm 84 is going to be our responsive reading. Uh, It talks about just being, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. (laughs) I say amen. So here it is, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he, Jesus, has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Psalm 84, I'm going to read the first and odd verses. If you would join together in reading the second and even verses. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. (laughs) Blessed is somebody. (laughs) Okay, let's try it again. Okay, let's get this. Blessed. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given to us the Bible, your word. And we read these things, and they speak of things that are so... (laughs) moving to us in our hearts when we think of you and how good you are. And we would rather be a doorkeeper in your house than dwell in any tent here in this earth. Lord, we are thankful that you are our shield. You are the one who, who we praise and honor. I hardly know what to say, Lord, except to ask you to show us today afresh who you are, how much you are involved and in active participation in this thing called life. We want to honor you with our hearts this morning. I pray you give, give us ears to hear. I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, the things I've prepared, break them fresh for this time right now, going through these path, this passage, and bless our desire, Lord, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You can be seated. So, if need be, I'm going to apologize right up front because I'm doing something this morning that they tell you you shouldn't do, and that is I'm going to be doing a lot of quoting from a uh, a commentary by uh, a guy named Andrew Murray. Many of you have heard of him. He published this commentary called The Holiest of All. It was published in 1894. So, it's 120 plus years old, but you would think he wrote it yesterday as far as the truths that are in Hebrews. So, here we, here's part of these quotes. Quote, the great complaint of all who have cared for souls is the lack of wholeheartedness, of steadfastness, of perseverance and progress in the Christian life. Many, of whom one cannot but hope that they are true Christians, come to a standstill and do not advance beyond the rudiments of Christian life and practice. And many more do not even remain stationary 
but turned back to a life of worldliness, of formality, or indifference, of indifference. And the question is continually being asked, what is the want or what lacks in our religion that, in so many cases, it gives no power to stand, to advance, to press on into perfection? And what is the teaching that is needed to give that health and vigor in the Christian life that through all adverse circumstances, it may be able, we may be able to hold fast the beginning to the end, unquote. We are told in the book of Hebrews to hold fast the confidence that we have, to hold fast our confession, to hold fast to our hope that we have in Christ. And so as I'm going now, we're going to be going into the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews has been argued about. There are a lot of different, but nobody really knows. Some think Paul wrote it. Others think Apollos, Priscilla. Somebody told me after that they vote for Apollos. Okay, I, should, I said, maybe we should take a survey. Who thinks who? <laughs> Others believe that Paul wrote it, and then Luke translated it into Greek. Whoever it was, I, I think Barnabas is an interesting candidate. He was a Levite. The book is filled with Levitical ritual and things of the Levitical priesthood. One quote that I like from Griffith Thomas, he said this, quote, this epistle, without introduction or subscription, this starts out, is like the great high priest of whom it treats, who was without beginning of days or end of years, abiding as high priest continually. It is entirely fitting that this book should remain anonymous, unquote. I like that. And so, I've, I've got a lot of notes. I've shared this with you most of my studies. I got a lot of things on my, in my notes. I'm not going to be able to hit all of those, but if you uh, would like, I'm happy to send them to you because I have a lot of things here this morning. I'm asking the Holy Spirit just to help us. My heart has been moved again when in studying these introductory things for Hebrews and going through the, the book as I have in memorizing, those kinds of things. I, I realize my heart cry is I want to go deeper with God. I want to understand and live in this, the heavenlies, if you will, in my relationship with God. And so this book begins right where it should begin, God. Say amen. God, used 68 times in this book itself. So God is obviously centered to the whole book itself, but the writer, no introduction, says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. God has spoken. He is a God of variety. He speaks in a lot of different ways. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush. We just got done studying Exodus. To David in Nathan. To Balaam in a donkey. <laughs> to Elijah in a still small voice. To Isaiah in, the vision, in a vision in the temple. He spoke to Hosea. Listen, he spoke to Hosea in his family circumstances. How many would say, yeah, I need to hear God in my family circumstances? And to Amos in a basket of summer fruit, God spoke. He spoke through dreams, visions, angels, the Urim and Thummim, through symbols, natural events, a pillar of fire, smoke, and many other means. He spoke in Ur the Chaldees. He spoke in Haran. He spoke in Canaan. He spoke in Egypt. He spoke in Babylon. And listen, he's still speaking in Kent. How? What strikes me, and I'll come back to this again in closing, what strikes me is that God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And yet I am so easily distracted, even captivated, by the myriad of other voices that get my attention. A lot of other things. Martha was distracted with much serving. We can even be serving the Lord and distracted. The book of Ephesians, or the book of Revelation, rather, as Jesus is talking to the book, the first church in Ephesus, he says, you've left your first, I know your works, your labor, your service, your patience, your perseverance, I know all that, but yet I have this against you, that you've left your first love. He said, repent, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there, you go in the book, the church in Ephesus, you think, wow, this is great. And yet Jesus looks and says, you've left the very heartbeat of the church, loving him, your love for him. And so this, 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 that's what has struck me as I've been preparing for these studies. So, I was, in fact, I was sharing with the prayer meeting yesterday. 
that as I've been doing the studying, as I'm reflecting, as I'm going over memory verses from Hebrews, I tell you, there were moments where I just felt so shallow in the things of God. I hear these truths I'm reading and these things that I'm, I'm thinking about, and I am so thankful that once again, the Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, came to my rescue got my mind right, got my heart thankful, got my spirit rejoicing again in the fact that God has spoken. God has revealed himself. And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, this is what came to mind, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, don't stop there. Often that's taking, that's, no, no. But, he says, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows. Look, no one knows the things of God except through the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is, in, who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. As believers, we have been given the Holy Spirit of God who is speaking to us all the time. He's ministering all the time. You ever have some song come up in your mind and you start singing? Oh, how I love Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit just prompting the heart toward the things to lift us and strengthen us. The Holy Spirit in us. Jesus said, it's necessary to go away because if I don't go, I'm not going to send the Holy Spirit. But when he comes, he will teach you all things. He'll guide you into all truth. He will speak of me. He will declare what is mine, all things. The Holy Spirit is going to continually point us back to Jesus. He's speaking. So it says there, he spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets Deep roots in the Old Testament. Deep roots in these past things that God has spoken. Nothing new or novel as he's simply quoting from the Old Testament. God speaks and we're going to see something very unique in the book of Hebrews. That when the author quotes the Old Testament, which he does frequently 35 times in 57 of the verses in Hebrews, almost 20% of the book is Old Testament quotes. But with those quotes, rarely, only a couple times, does he name the author? Does he name the one who said it? The one who wrote it? He talks about David at one point. He talks about Moses. But all the other are just, here's the Old Testament. Here's the scriptures. Here's what God said. And he says, sometimes God said it. The Holy Spirit said it. Sometimes he talks about this whole idea of Christ and what all these things to me He's saying, in effect, what the Scripture says, God says. Yes, author, human authors, but he is doing this in the book of Hebrews frequently. Has in his last days spoken to us by his son, more literally, on the last of these days, he's spoken to us by his son. It's Jesus. God spoke through the Old Testament in preparation for the Son. By the way, the the isn't there, by Son. So it's giving to Jesus his place, as we're going to see even in four verses this morning. This highly exalted place of honor and dignity in who he is. But Son, capital S. The thrust of the whole Old Testament and the thrust of our studies in Hebrews will be Jesus Christ as our great high priest. It's incredible. These, God has spoken eight things concerning his son that we're going to see here. Verses one through four are one sentence. Now, your translation may have broken into small. It's one sentence. It's like, this is Jesus no, no, no separate. These things are all who he is. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Designated heir of all things. He has lawful possession of all things. He has the, uh, this title of honor and dignity far above all others. 
He rightfully inherits whatever the Father has designated by His divine will, the Son. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? He is the heir of all things. He's appointed that. Psalm 2, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's the heir of all things. Ask for me, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. It's all his. Philippians, Paul writes this, and being found Jesus in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, and all God's people said, Amen. He is the heir of all things, not some things, all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, this speaks certainly of Jesus as creator, active in creation. In fact, in John chapter 1, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In 1 Corinthians 8, yet, us, yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we, are, we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Our very breath is in his hands. But more than that, this thing, creator of He's the creator of all things, but he's also the one who moves the things along in his purpose and plan. The course of all time in history is in his hands, Jesus. That word, the worlds, means the ages. The universe as the sum of the periods of time, including all that is manifest in them. And so we're going to pick up this word ages again in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, by faith we understand that the worlds, the ages, were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The created universe, but also moving these things along, though we don't see them. Who, number three of the eight things, who being the brightness of his glory, he's the radiance, he's the reflection, he's the outshining, like the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. He radiates the Lord's glory. I love what this, well, it says in him, in John, was life. The light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. There's Jesus. And he was, Isaiah tells us, he looked like any other man. And yet he is the essence of the of very God himself. The person of God himself. John chapter 8. Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. The outshining. I'm the reflection. I'm the radiance of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's Jesus. Philip Hughes writes this, and I think it's so spot on. He observes this verse. He says, quote, this is not so much the glory of the Son's deity shining through his humanity, but the glory of God being manifested in the perfection of his manhood, completely attuned as it was to the will of the Father, unquote. Now, may I stop a moment and just say this. In the book of Hebrews, we're going to be looking at our great high priest with much centering on that. God is wanting our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and understanding the priestly work that he's doing now, that our lives would be the same manifestation of a human life being submitted to God's will. Living in that glory, living in that outshining. Jesus causes in our lives the radiance of the Father, as it was with him, to shine forth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is our Savior, He's also our sanctifier as our great high priest. We'll look at that in a moment. Number four, Jesus, the express image of his person. This is an unusual word used only in the Greek, used only one time, and it's here in in Hebrews. 
Originally, it denoted an instrument of engraving and then a mark stamped on the instrument. So the impression or the die would be the picture. The impression left in wax when a signet ring is pushed into that. A minted coin that bears the image of a sovereign or a king or a president. Jesus is the precise stamp of God. He's God stamped in human flesh. He's the same imprint. He's the same substance. He is God. One and yet three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you can figure that out, let me know. He's God. He is also fully human. And thus this outshining, seeing this life lived perfectly. Now, that probably bothered his, bothered his brothers and sisters. Mom, he's so perfect. He never does anything as they're growing up. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 14. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the father and it suffices us, sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how do you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The works that I do, he says there, the words that I speak, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who sent me, who dwells in me, does the works, one together. Believe me that I am in the Father and follow me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Not just what I'm saying, but what I'm doing. And it blows my mind more so lately than ever. You watch, just, just stop and read the Gospels. And Jesus healed people left and right. Impo- blind people, lame people, dead people. He went about doing good. He's doing all these things. You would think you'd have no problem believing this one is a cut above. And yet they crucified him. He came into the world and the world did not know him. Those whom he came to did not understand. God was speaking to them about their need through his son for forgiveness and salvation that he came provide. So John the Baptist said, behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I thought of that, hark the herald angels sing our little Christmas song. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, capital M, with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus came, express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, means sustaining, carrying along. This is not like Atlas, okay? Upholding all things. Not that. He's not just upholding the dead weight of a pretty heavy earth. (laughs) Upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus carrying it, that's what it means. It's carrying it along. He's bearing it toward a goal. It's the totality. Nothing is excluded. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Expository Bible commentary says, quote, the author pictures the son as in the first instance active in creation and then as the continuing, as continuing his interest in the world he loves and bearing it onward towards the fulfillment of the divine plan, unquote. This is my father's world. I hear him speak. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me. God is carrying this thing. Jesus is carrying this thing along. Why? Because there's a world he created that he loves. Loves. Paul wraps all these same things we've just looked at, these five so far, in his letter to the Colossians. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, go into the invisible realm of the demonic force as well as the angelic realm. He created all those things. And he is before all things. He's eternal. And by him, all things, there it is, consist. All things are held together. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The church. He is the head of the church. Number six, about Jesus. When he had purged, when he had by himself purged our sins. Here's the heart matter. Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin. When he had by himself purged our sins, cleansed our sin, removed our sin, if we were to be reconciled to God so that we can have fellowship with God, the issue of sin must be resolved. When he had by himself purged our sins. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is ear heavy that he it cannot hear, but your iniquity has separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin separates from God. Spiritual death. Death is simply separation. Physical death, my body, I'm separated from my body, my soul and spirit. Spiritual death, I'm separated from God. And that is the problem, that right in the beginning of of the, when God created man, sin came into the world through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. That was the problem that needed to be resolved. He had by himself. If he had not come, if he had not died, if he had not risen from the dead, we are of all men most pitied. We got this so we can look at him saying, is that it? He is the sin bearer. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the substitute sacrifice, the propitiation. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. He is by Himself, He by Himself on the cross. Purged our sin. Central to what Jesus came. Sin is a key word in the book of Hebrews. 25 times, exceeded only by the book of Romans, which you should take up also, 48 times. We have a new relationship to sin. Romans is such an essential book. God has spoken six things concerning his son and our sin. Book of Hebrews, we'll be getting all these things. This is just an introduction, overview. Hebrews 2.17 He had to to be made like his brethren to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 9.26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His son and our sin. Christ suffered once to, to bear the sins of many. Number four, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Number five, this man offered one sacrifice for sins forever done. Finished, complete. When Jesus died, it is finished. His doneness is our beginning in this new relationship with God. Number six, where there is remission of these, that's, that's actually mentioned twice in Hebrews. Where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin and left the Christian. He purged it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. Where no other could ever do that. He did it. Done. No longer an offering for sin. Number seven. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, just the, he's sitting. It's the posture of rest. Do you know there were no chairs in the tabernacle? There were no chairs in the temple. Because it tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. The work was not done. The place of rest was not accomplished until Jesus did what he did. And he died, he rose again, ascended to heaven, and he's seated, it says there, at the right hand of the majesty. He is seated in the throne place, in the place 
as God on his throne. Place of highest honor. Number eight, and having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Another key word, 13 times, is better. Let me give you seven times he, he, in Hebrews, seven things that accompany salvation. Two bracket verses. Begins Hebrews 6, 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. We're going to get to these, these warnings in a moment. Though we speak in this manner, let me say, he's saying, better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, you're saved, but let me tell you, there's a lot more to it. There's a better hope. There's a better covenant. This better covenant was established on better promises. There were, there's better sacrifice than these. There's a better and enduring possession for us as believers. There's a desire for a better heavenly country. This is all a part of what Jesus accomplished and we entered into by grace through faith. And then seven, we will obtain a better resurrection. And the bracket verse then, Hebrews eleven forty. God having provided something better for us. He's saying, first of all, this is concerning you, but let me tell you what Jesus accomplished for us. That they should not be made perfect apart from us. The better things are those that accompany salvation. It's ours, superior over everything. The prophets, the angels, Moses, and Levitical priesthood. Now here I want to park a little bit. God has spoken many things, book of Hebrews, concerning our sanctification, our holy living, our growth as believers in walking in righteousness and true holiness. He's spoken many things. The book of, he the book of Hebrews, the letter is characterized by solemn warnings. And the warnings are to believers. That's what makes some of these passages very difficult. Can you lose your salvation? How does this thing work? If you fall away, you're the, you're, you go into apostasy. How does this thing work? We'll get to that. But he gives us these many things concerning our sanctification, our going on in our salvation, leaving the elementary principles of, self, of, sanctif of baptism and laying on of hands. He says, let's move on in our walk with Christ. Now, I don't know where or how long you've known the Lord. I don't know how long you've walked with the Lord this morning. But I will say to you, the book of Hebrews is going to be challenging your walk with God because God loves you. He knows you. And he longs for you to know him in an intimate, growing, deeper way. He wants that. He desires that for you and for me. And so the book of Hebrews has 303 verses, in case you didn't know. 84 of those verses, which is almost 30% of the book, are these warnings. Now, the interesting thing about that is that if you were to take these sections, these parenthetical uh, warnings, if you take them out of the book, you could read it and understand what's being said. You could read it and understand the arguments. Interesting, but I'll let you do that. There are some handouts. What, can you give me that handout a minute? These handouts are up here. I'm not going to go through them now, but you come and get them to help you. But these warnings make up 84 verses. So the first warning is right after chapter 1, verses chapters two, chapter 2, 1 through 4. And then you have this longer one, 26 verses. You have another one, 24 verses. Then you have the one that's, that's what does that say, 14 verses and then 16. So these are warnings, listen, to the believer. That's you and me unless you're not a believer this morning, then I would say there's something that needs to happen for you. You need to come to the cross and repent of your sin. Why? I'll tell you why. God loves you. That's simple. He hasn't left you out of his plans, but it's your choice if you would like to be a part of his plans. His, this thing called salvation. So I would call you this morning, as we will through this study, 
Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sin? Do you understand that you are under judgment, under condemnation because of your sin? God's provided that for you, but you must choose. Love is never forced. Love is a choice. And God has given you everything needed through the gospel. Understand this simple message that you know in your heart you're not right with God. You know in your heart something's wrong. You know the emptiness of life apart from something or someone. I'm saying to you, the answer is Jesus Christ for your salvation. He is the captain. It goes in, in Hebrews. We look at it. He's the captain of our salvation. He's bringing many sons to glory. But you have to decide, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want him to be your captain? Do you want to be one of the sons brought to glory? It comes through the gospel. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved from what? Sin. And then these warnings that are kicking in are to the believers in this book. And so these parenthetical warnings. So here's what I arrived at. We might remove these solemn warnings and still know what God has said. The argument can be followed. No problem. I'll let you check it out. Grab one of those and go to Hebrews chapter 1. Read it through verse 14. As chapter 2 begins, verses 1 through 4, just take them out and read Hebrews 1.14 and then go to Hebrews 2.5. It makes perfect sense. All, every one of these. It's amazing. So we might remove these warnings and still know what God has said. But we cannot remove these warnings, dear believers, and understand what God is saying. All these things are fantastic, but our salvation isn't this one thing that happens and we go live happily ever after. No, our salvation brings with it the Holy Spirit of God a desire in our hearts to know God and love God and obey God. And it moves us along. And so as we're looking at the book of Hebrews, these warnings are to move us along in understanding God has more for us. And I thirst for that. I long for that. And so there's, there can be neglect, unbelief, apostasy, willful sin, indifference. The law of the human mind is this. Neglect, can I get the next one? Neglect will give place to unbelief. Unbelief to apostasy. Apostasy to willfully sinning. And this is interesting, but it's true. Willful sin to indifference. The end of it is you don't care anymore. We're going to look at this whole thing of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when we get into Hebrews chapter 6. What is that? How does that work? I'll say when someone has committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as I look at Hebrews chapter 6, number one, privately, they've rejected Christ. But then also publicly, they put him to open shame. They don't care anymore. I'll leave you with that encouraging note. <laughs> so blatant, blatantly central to the book of Hebrews is Jesus as our great high priest. Hungering to know him in the holiness and the majesty of his high priestly work for us. That's the secret of spiritual growth. Spiritual, the sanctification, the moving on, is that we have a high priest who is now in heaven working on, for us. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it in thy courts above. Where a great high priest is there for us. These things are what make the study of Hebrews so vital, so important. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 10, 18 is doctrinal. Focusing in on Jesus 
who is our great high priest, doctrinal. He is. Here's why. Here's how that works. Here's what happened. But then we get to the practical side of the book after 10 plus chapters, or 10 chapters. We get to the practical through the end of the book. And these are put where we put our full assurance of faith in Jesus as our great high priest. He is that, but we, put, we must by faith, full assurance of faith, believe that and operate and live our lives as our great high priest. Now, the audience to whom this epistle is written were, num- were members of a specific community of Jewish believers. Some suggest in Jerusalem, others in Rome, we don't really know. The letter moves within the scope of the Old Testament scriptures and Jewish liturgy. These Jews had come to faith in Jesus and were taking a stand for the gospel. They were doing that. The author wrote because he loved them. He wrote because he knew their needs, but here it is. He wrote because he longed for them to have the spiritual growth and sanctification and holiness where they're going deeper, they're going on. They're not in an arrested state of spiritual development. That's why he wrote it. He loved them, he knew them, and he desired, he longed that they would know Jesus in a deeper way. He was concerned, deeply concerned. Of Kind of because their profession of faith was waning. Because their profession of faith was slipping, their practice. They had become lazy, no longer giving earnest heed, neglecting the great salvation. They were no longer holding fast their profession or their confidence. As I'm sharing these things, just as you're listening, I'm saying to my own heart, Lord, let the Holy Spirit, is this what's going on? Is this happening? God knows. Jesus, our great high priest, he's saying, come, come, let me do the work in your life that you so long for in drawing close to God, in knowing him. Their Christian life was feeble and ready to die. Others had gone back and were in danger of coming short of the promise and yielding to willful sin, drawing back to perdition. Still others were in danger of refusing him who speaks from heaven. You see, they've been backsliding, some of these believers. You know, when you start drifting, it's slow and imperceptible. Thankful the Holy Spirit comes and I believe this morning, just as we're thinking together, I want to take a moment when I'm done, before we sing our final song, just to cry out to God and say, Lord, here's my longing for you. Here's my longing to go on. Here's my longing to go deeper. And that's only going to happen as we begin to understand the work that Jesus is doing for us as our great high priest in heaven. When he had by himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, we readily apply the work of Jesus on earth at the cross, readily. Listen, we must hunger. And I, I will say to you, this is what happened for me as I'm just realizing. You know, in fact, I was telling the prayer group yesterday, I feel in many ways shallow when I'm reading and meditating. Did I already say that? And you know, you you read these things. Well, I did say it, I think. You weren't listening. If you said it, I did, because I remember doing the verse in Corinthians, okay? But, you know, there's that longing that we have for God. That's this eternal sort of depth and width and length and height, knowing His love. That this side of heaven... There's more and more and more. Laying hold of the priestly work in heaven for us today. Quote, it is not the blood shedding upon earth only, 
is the blood sprinkling in heaven and the blood sprinkling from heaven on heart and conscience that brings the power of the heavenly life to us. And it is this alone that makes us Christians who not only seek to enter the gate, but who daily press on in a living way that leads ever deeper into the holiest. Let no one think that I speak of what is too high. I speak of what is your heritage and destiny. The same share you have in Jesus on the cross, you have in Jesus on the throne. Be ready to sacrifice the earthly life for the heavenly, to follow Christ fully in his separation from the world and in his surrender to God's will, and Christ in heaven will prove in you the reality of the power of his, hev- of his heavenly priesthood. Unquote. Do you long for that? Do you desire after those heavenly things? What strikes me is the fact that God has spoken in these last days by his son. And I want to obey. I want to surrender to his will. Not my will, but your will. I want that. I desire that because I'm born again. But more often than I'd like to admit, I don't. I don't. Now, it might be you don't know how to hear God speak to you. Listen, if you're a believer, you long to hear that. You long to know that. It may be that I don't take time to hear God speak to me. In other words, it's not a priority. Is it a priority? When was the last time you opened a revival and just read from the word of God and let him speak to you? When was that? Is that a regular part of your life and of my life? Just making that a priority that it hasn't been You know, it may just be that I don't want to hear God because I like my sin. I don't want the conviction to my detriment, to my danger. So what are we going to do? We're going to do what we just did this morning. We're going to consider Jesus and keep our focus on Jesus. Consider the apostle and high priest of your confession. Consider that we have a greater high priest, another priest. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider Jesus. But listen, we can't consider Jesus three times in the book of Hebrews. The fourth time is we can't consider Jesus without consider one another. If we love God, we will love one another. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together and so much more as you see a day approaching. And then the next one comes a warning, for if we sin willfully, for we sin willfully. When we're out of fellowship, we're not loving one another, we're not going to church, we're not involved in some, some manner of community with believers, it's easier and easier and easier to find myself sinning and not be sensitive to it. In fact, even when we hear the word, sometimes it's uncomfortable. What might we consider from this morning's study? That God has spoken through the prophets and by his son. And that God is still speaking through the inerrant, infallible word of God, the scriptures, and its living fulfillment in the son, Jesus. Jesus, heir of all things, that includes you, believer. Jesus made all things, that includes you, believer and unbeliever. He created you. Think of that. He made you. Knit you together in your mother's room. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by him. Jesus, the very nature of God, who through faith in the gospel came into your life. Jesus carrying everything forward to its final end and purpose, and that includes your life. Jesus has purged our sins. That includes your sins, my sins. Jesus, seated in heaven as a great high priest, he will take care of everything needed that I might know him and grow in sanctification and holiness. He is that. So I close with these quotes, and then I'd like to just take a moment as the worship team will come up. 
just to quietly say, God, please, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The author sets himself to show them how wonderfully, how divinely all the prophecies and types of the Old Testament had their fulfillment in the salvation the Son of God has wrought for us. He unceasingly places their weakness and Christ's person side by side. He is sure that if they but know Christ, all will be well. The knowledge of the heavenly character of Christ's person and work is what alone can make heavenly Christians who amid all the difficulties and temptations of life on earth can live as those whom the superior power of the upper world has possessed and in whom it can carry, always give the victory. So this is an invitation to all who long for the rest of God, for a life in the holiest of God's love, for the fullness of faith and hope and love to take up the study of the epistle with the confident assurance of finding in its revelation of what Christ and salvation are, the deliverance from sin and sloth, the joy and the strength of a new life. And finally, the great work of God in heaven, the chief thought and longing of his heart is in his son to reach your heart and speak to you. Oh, let it be the great work of your life and the great longing of your heart to know this Jesus as a humble, meek disciple to bow at his feet and let him teach you of God and eternal life. And so would you just, in the quietness where you're sitting, just before the Lord, lift your heart to him. Lift your, what you've been thinking to him. Say, Lord, I want to go deeper. I want to know you more fully, more completely. I want to know the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, being conformed to his death, being made in the image that you have given to us that we are to follow yourself. I'm going to leave this for you for just a couple of minutes and then we'll sing a song together and we'll come up, I'll come up and close.